Yeah, so I'm Casey. I don't know if I, I feel like I met everybody in this room, actually. I was going to do like a, if I haven't met you. Uh, my, my, uh, my better half, Sarah, came up and lighted the candle, uh, which is something people say, but in my case, literally true. <laughs> Just better. She's my better person. Um, okay. Well, I know most of us in here have a skeptical relationship to wokeness, but I'm about to get us woke this morning. Um, I think of myself as being pretty up on the culture, but this one actually surprised me. Okay. How many of you have heard of body positivity? Right? It's like, oh, we love, love your body, respect your body, all bodies are beautiful. Okay. How about sex positivity? Yeah, sex is fun, sex is good, yay. Okay. Now, who's heard of death positivity? Yes. Anybody here but death positive? <laughs> it's 2022, so you know this is a real thing. I'm not making this up. Death, was, death positivity was created by an actual real-life mortician who happens to live down the street from us. <laughs> yeah, her funeral home is right next to the Hollywood Forever Cemetery. And this is what she says about her movement. I think we should bring death out into the open. An open acknowledgement of our own death can help us in a lot of positive ways. I hope everyone can be so comfortable talking about death. And actually, you know, I can kind of get behind some of the stuff she says. She talks about making the funeral industry less profit-driven and making burial more green. You know, I want to go green, right? But take a step back from this, and what do you see? This is a culture that has no idea what to do with its own mortality. We've so completely lost the story of what it means to be alive. We need some way of making death not all that bad, right? See, I reject any notion that we should take death and turn it into something natural or humorous even or positive. I'm at the point in my life where I know death. I've watched my family and my friends deal with death. I've grieved. I've seen other people grieve. And I've seen them put their hope in something greater, too. But not once have I thought to myself, you know, we need to be more relaxed about this. I embrace that death is not the way things were meant to be. And here's the thing. If you're a follower of Jesus, you actually believe this, too. You believe that death isn't natural. You believe that we were made to live forever. And this thing that we call death isn't the natural order of the world. It's actually the overwhelming evidence that this world is not as it's supposed to be. The culture's way of dealing with death is either, you know, let's ignore it for as long as we possibly can or, you know, embrace it as natural. Here's a better way. Let's live fully aware that we're going to the grave and at the same time believing that that is not our ending. It's not the true ending at all, in fact. Let's live with the ending in mind where death is swallowed up, right? And tears and crying and mourning are no more. 
if we lived as though all of that were true. (laughs) I mean, I believe that Jesus would give us more peace in the face of our trials, more hope when we're grieving, more perspective for our broken world. And in order to our lives, where we can live them more fully in the moment, aware that life is short, and at the same time, that life goes on and on and on for all eternity. Let's read our passage today. This is the beginning of Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making all things new. Then he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this. And I will be their God, and they will be my children. Like Brad said, this is my favorite passage from Revelation. In it, we get to see God restore all of creation, heaven and earth, to fix the broken things of our world. God returns to be with us. We're no longer separated from him by sin. All the fruit of sin, death, pain, crying are undone. The water of life, which Jesus spoke of with the Samaritan woman at the well, that is eternal life, which comes from following him, is now freely given to us. Those of us who are, who are victorious, meaning those of us who persisted in believing in Jesus, inherit all of this. And the prophecies of Isaiah are both referenced and fulfilled, along with that refrain that's common throughout the whole Old Testament. They will be my children, and I will be their God. If you know the story of God, you know that this is what we have to look forward to. That's what we mean every time we talk about our hope in the resurrection. But now, let's get real. Do you live like this is true? Is this the central concern of your life? Or does God's return and his victory seem, you know, far away? And you find yourself full of the cares of this life. I'll be honest, I I think I'm kind of a mixed bag. Do I feel secure in Jesus? Yeah, most of the time, yeah, I think so. But I also find myself thinking, what will come of all of this as though I don't already know the answer, right? 
I read about Ukraine and the war, and I'm like, oh my gosh, this could become a bigger war. I read about climate change, and I'm like, what kind of planet are my children going to inherit? You know, what if there's a recession next year? Did I budget enough money for Christmas presents? You know, and then, oh gosh, the crazy grandpas come into town for Christmas. Just kidding, Papa. <laughs> You're the exact right amount of crazy for us. But to be for real, I'm worried, you know. I, if I'm honest, I think I'm, I'm kind of full of worries. Are you? Yeah, Jesus once described the kingdom of God this way. as a seed which goes into the soil of our hearts. But when we find ourselves consumed with the concerns of this life, this is what Jesus says. The seed falling among thorns refers to someone who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, making it unfruitful. Without eternal perspective, our concerns are misplaced, right? Maybe for you it's the brokenness of this world or paying your mortgage or how the heck am I going to save up enough money for a mortgage, right? Maybe it's your promotion or your boss or how do I look? How do others perceive me, right? I've heard about all of these things at one time or another, but whatever it is that's taking up your attention, the most important thing you can ask yourself, is this temporary? Is this passing away with the old order of the world? And by the way, that doesn't mean it's insignificant or unimportant to God. Remember, he's making all things new. But it is a matter of emphasis. Are you concerned with the kingdom of God? Or are you living a life which is hobbled by distraction? and worries. You know, it's hard to maintain perspective when you're three years old. My son, Thad, is three going on four. My daughter, Sophia, is one and a half. They're learning how to play together. Uh, So it's a daily occurrence in our house now that at some point you're going to hear Thad cry out, no, baby sister, no! You know, are you doubting the doctrine of original sin? Come by my house. We'll make you a believer. And the worst toy for this, like by far, is Legos. She just loves knocking them over. You know, so whenever Sophia is in the room, he knows, or at least he feels, he's only ever seconds from disaster. It's pretty obvious to me he'd have more fun if he just treated everything he built as temporary. But, you know, I've got the advantage of age. From the perspective of eternity, a lot of us are like Thad, though, aren't we? We're deep in our Legos, our jobs, our statuses, relationships, finances. They all feel so big to us, so important, and so threatened. If we treated these things as temporary, if we remembered our good father was watching over us, and care for us. Even if we make a mess of things, we probably enjoy ourselves more and we get to live in the freedom he made us for. So yes, without eternal perspective, we're going to have misplaced concerns. But without that perspective, our hopes can be misplaced too. 
Think about what we see at the beginning of this passage. Every earthly kingdom, just like every earthly person, is headed to the grave. The old order of things is passing away, right? God's metaphor for restoration, the new Jerusalem, the holy city, is descending from heaven. See, in the old Jerusalem, God dwelt in the temple. But in the new Jerusalem, he dwells with us, his people. And just like Jesus' crucifixion, where the veil of the temple was torn in two to signify the end of God's separation from his people, this image of Jerusalem signifies God's restoration of his presence and his kingdom to us and to the earth. If you think about New Jerusalem as like an actual city, it kind of puts our city in perspective, right? In the New Jerusalem, there's no corrupt cops. There's no homeless encampments, right? There's no gentrifiers, and there's no displaced families. There's no rivers that need to be cleaned up because there's no polluters that need to be reined in. There's no protests because there's no injustice. There's no HOAs, there's no traffic, there's no crime. There's no exclusive restaurants because there's no exclusion of any kind. There's no rich side of town and there's no neighborhood you shouldn't walk in after night. And yet, how many of us have thought if LA could fix just just one of those things, then finally we'll be okay, finally, right? The brokenness of this world is exhausting. And so we place our hope in change. Police reform, affordable housing, lower taxes, or maybe higher taxes, whatever it is, right? We make up ideologies, philosophies. Yes, we make up religions, political movements to deliver us a better world. And when we see these movements fail or prove to be a partial solution at best, we discard them or we pretend they weren't implemented correctly, right? We long for the new Jerusalem and yet we seem surprised every time our revolutionaries or our earthly rulers prove unable to deliver it. Here's the thing, the most just, wise, tolerant, equitable, prosperous, generous, and free kingdom of this earth would still not be enough. Wouldn't be enough. Because what we need, the world doesn't have. We need complete healing from sin and the forgiveness which only Jesus can offer. Amen? Look at how many political movements, once they're divorced from the king and the kingdom, just end up in mayhem and oppression, right? Karl Marx, shocked by the widespread suffering and the brutal conditions of the working class, proposes a new society, a society in which no one may be exploited for their work, and communism is born. But because these ideas have no place for God, because the state has to be God, and communist governments will end up killing millions of their own citizens in the name of progress. Let's take another example. Fidel Castro, he's fighting to free his people from a brutal military dictatorship that exploits them and their resources. And at the end, what does he become? 
a brutal military dictator. The Islamic Revolution in Iran, right? There's this horrible king, the Shah. He's corrupt. He runs a police state. He tortures dissidents. And by the end of the revolution, the revolutionaries will be the torturers and the clerics will be the dictators. By the way, don't think that Christian movements are okay. It's not like just because it's a Christian movement, it's going to work out. The Crusades were declared originally as a pilgrimage, a holy pilgrimage to rescue Christians from unjust governments that were oppressing them. And by the end, unarmed men and women and children were massacred as those armies marched into Jerusalem. History is full of utopia moments. It's just, that's what we love to do. And they always end this way. As soon as we believe that we have the power to construct the kingdom ourselves, sin and death and evil are sure to follow. It is only when we forsake worldly kingdoms, worldly power, worldly hopes, and set our eyes on new Jerusalem and our hope in Jesus that we can again be instruments of the true restoration. So what do we get when our hopes and our concerns are in order? What do we get when we do have eternal perspective? Well, freedom, which sounds nice, right? We get to be alive and less worried about what might happen or might not happen. We don't have to live with the burden of trying to build God's kingdom ourselves through our politics or our Instagram or whatever else it is that tells you is the answer. With eternal perspective, our lives actually gain a reasonable order. We can grieve death without being destroyed by it. We can get angry at injustice without resorting to violence to fix it or despairing over its existence. We can save money and still be generous with people. Right? We can be busy in our lives and still relaxed. We have a long, hard day and think, someday this is just going to be a memory. If you're walking with Jesus, this is where you're headed. You're going home. You're going home to be with God, to the place you've always belonged. It's a place without crying or pain, but full of the laughter and joy which you were always meant to have. Jesus came to the earth to do this. He prophesied he would do these things and that they would come with his kingdom. He proved that he was the king and that he had the power to do them by his death and resurrection. He made it possible for you to belong to the kingdom by his blood poured out for us on the cross, covering over our sins. And here's the good news of the Advent season. As soon as Jesus came into this world, we were assured of victory. Jesus came to live among us, to suffer for us, to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. Yes. And the moment he arrived in the story, nothing was ever going to be the same. Even as an infant in Bethlehem. Even when Herod was trying to hunt him down. Even when the Pharisees were trying to stifle him and silence him. Even when his own followers doubted him. Even when the Romans murdered him, the kingdom was already secure. No one and nothing can stop him from returning again. In what is probably my favorite passage of apologetics, 
This is how C.S. Lewis describes his hope. A man's physical hunger does not prove that he will get any bread. He may die of starvation on a raft in the Atlantic, but surely a man's hunger does prove that he comes from a race which repairs its body by eating and inhabits a world where eatable substances must exist. In the same way, though I do not believe, I wish I did, that my desire for paradise proves I shall enjoy it. I think it a pretty good indication that such a thing exists and that some men will. This quote gets it, doesn't it? I mean, we're hungry. We're hungry. Hungry for a better world. We're tired of our cares and anxieties and we want to see an end to the suffering and injustice that we see all around us. We're hungry for a better story for our lives, a better kingdom in which to live. We're hungry. And the world won't satisfy us. Only a paradise in which all things are set right and made new. Jesus said in John 6, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. So here's your opportunity today. Recognize the longings of your heart for what they really are. If you're hungry for bread, such a thing as bread must exist, right? Our griefs, even our griefs, testify to the reality of God. All of creation is crying out. Believe that these words are trustworthy and true. Don't settle for man's kingdoms. Don't get lost in the temporary things of this world. But live each day waiting for God's kingdom. Keep your heart fixed on what's eternal. If we lived with that perspective, so many of our misplaced fears and misplaced hopes would just melt away in irrelevance. We'd find the freedom Jesus says we were made for. Our lives would be filled with a quiet confidence. We would step in in the Advent season knowing that the birth of Jesus is not just a nice story. It is the story, the story that we all live inside, the story which changes everything about everything. We know that one day, every bad thing in the world will become untrue because Jesus is coming back for us. I'm going to pray and then we can take communion. Lord, I pray you would give us that perspective. Give us that hope. Give us, give us that assurance again, God. To remind us that the kingdom is close at hand. Don't, get it. Don't let us be lost in the temporary things. Don't let us confuse worldly kingdoms for your kingdom. Lord, I pray that that knowledge would center us. I pray it would ground us. I pray we could live each day in the strength of that hope. And I pray that when we say Jesus is coming back, we'd mean it every time. I pray we would live our lives looking forward to something. 
I pray we would know we all have all this securely in you. Amen.